0: For me, fashion is a verb. So it's to fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. How are you all doing? If, like me, you've been feeling a bit anxious over the climate news, We've just had the latest IPCC report and it's quite grim, isn't it? I mean, I've certainly been feeling a bit... about it. I've got two things to recommend to kind of help you with that anxiety. One is a Guardian op-ed by the amazing writer Rebecca Solnit, all about hope. And the other is a past episode of this podcast. It's number 98 with the Australian climate activist Anna Rose. And it's all about courage. I'll share a link to both of these. Anyway, this is... Oh, it feels like the context for this week's interview. I've been thinking a lot about the carbon footprints of stuff that maybe we don't need. Like, for example, travel and fashion weeks. I miss these things, I really do. So there's a lot of kind of tension there. I can't go anywhere. We've been stuck in Sydney in lockdown for ages. And in terms of leaving Australia, I mean, months and months have passed now where we're not allowed. So I can't go anywhere. But then you start thinking, maybe I shouldn't anyway. If we really want to get serious about climate action, we do need to change our behaviour. And yet, dot, 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 right? Write in and tell me or tell me on social media. I'm at Mrs Press on Instagram and Twitter. Anyway, fashion weeks. Pre-pandemic, a report that was published by Audra and the Carbon Trust counted up all of the emissions from everybody going to the big four fashion weeks over the course of one year, And get this, it was 241,000 tons of CO2. That is enough to light up Times Square in New York for 58 years, or the Eiffel Tower for more than 3,000 years. Oh dear. Now, Fashion Month is coming up in September, and there'll be a return to physical shows in New York, London, Milan, and Paris. Will there be much change? Will sustainability be kind of top of mind? And will these organizations be trying to reduce their carbon footprint? As for example, Copenhagen Fashion Week, which has just wrapped, has been leading on that stuff. We will see. Now, I met this week's guest, who is the London-based Kenyan designer Anyango Mapinga, a couple of years ago at Fashion Week in Milan. She was a finalist there at Green Carpet Challenge. We've stayed in touch. And since then, she's shown at Tokyo Fashion Week. And you'll hear her talk about that. It's a great story. But also at Helsinki Fashion Week, which is all digital. In this conversation, we do ask, could digital presentations be the future for everyone? Because obviously they solve some of our problems, don't they, with carbon? But they also remove some of the financial barriers to entry. So they're more democratic but this discussion is not only about Fashion Week. It's a wide-ranging conversation about family, spirituality, diversity and purpose. Anyango works with the anti-human trafficking initiative Free as a Human. She's an awesome human. You're going to love this. I'm so pleased to be bringing you this conversation with my good friend Anyango Mapinga. Let's get to it. Anyango, do you want to begin just by giving us... A picture of what you do. What does the Anyanga Mapinga label look like? I'm a Kenyan designer and I'm currently based in London.
1: I would say my label starts off as the reimagined shirt dress. So you pick your favorite white shirt and reimagining what it looks like, the constructed. Very androgynous, and then it moves to a more feminine aesthetic. So it's a cross between androgyny and femininity, but it always starts with like the classic white shirt reimagined.
0: But you love print as well.
1: I love print, you know. So with print, I can play around more with like my history, my cultural identity. I design prints inspired by my culture, tradition, and African architecture. And I use those elements to create storytelling. I have a multicultural heritage. My mom is Kenyan. My dad is Tanzanian. So on the Tanzanian side, you have the Swahili influences, you mm. know, and Swahili is made up of Bantu languages and Arabic and even a bit of Portuguese. So, you know, when you think about Swahili culture, yeah, it's very it's, it's East African. You find Swahili in Tanzania and, you know, at the coast of Kenya and a little bit in Uganda, but primarily the coast of Kenya and Tanzania.
0: I love the scarves that you debuted at Helsinki Fashion Week that have those architectural motifs there. And when you look at the wooden doors, they always have ornaments on
1: them. Mm. And so I took that as a source of inspiration and I turned it into a textile print. You know, and I've done things like that before with like, you know, even my own tribe, which is called Luo, you know, there's a feather headdress called the Kondo Udo that warriors and dancers and elders would wear, you know? So it's a very very special headdress that's made from ostrich feathers. And particularly when you see the dancers moving in it, you know, only the men would wear it. But when you see them dancing in it and how it moves, I mean, it's the most beautiful thing. And I got to see this for the first time in my own village last year. And I did a recording. I recorded a video of it. And it was just the most extremely, it was just beautiful. And so I create prints inspired by stories like this.
0: You and I met a little while ago in 2019 at the judging of the Green Carpet Award for Best Emerging Designer. It's a sustainability event for any listeners who aren't aware Mm -hmm. of this. It's like this big fancy thing that happens during Milan Fashion Week and puts sustainable fashion in the spotlight and makes it very glamorous. I've got this vision of you standing next to this (laughs) model in an extremely gorgeous, dark, deep red dress. And you were talking about purpose remember
1: that I do remember it and you know when I was creating that dress incidentally my grandmother had just passed away you know so I actually yeah so I ended up naming that dress the dana dress and dana means grandmother in my in my in my tribe and she loved the color red so I kind of was channeling her You know, it's like I went from the funeral and then like went straight into, you know, green carpet.
0: (gasps) I did not know that. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah.
1: (laughs) So it was those those actually maybe less than a month in between that. And so when I was designing this dress, you know, I kept thinking back to like my culture and, you know, how like, you know, we have warriors that use feathers in their dresses so i wanted something that represented that you know and so i designed this dress first of all like i created a silk fur are you talking about the texture I'm talking about the texture. (laughs) I'm I'm purely talking about the texture. And that was designed from silk yarns that are wasted. So these silk yarns usually are not fine enough to be woven into textiles. And then one of the other things that I did is, um, so I collected like silk waste, you know, lying around at the factory and it was laser cut into, you know, tiny little pearls, which are then hand embroidered onto the
0: dress. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what your grandmother meant to you?
1: Well, you know, I'm named after her. So the name Anyango is actually her name. So much so that in my family as well, my pet name was mommy, you know? Yeah. So, so for me, it was really just like a part of me had, had gone. So it was, it was one of those things, you know, but at the same time, it was such a celebration because without her, we all wouldn't be here and the fact that she believed in education so much. You know, at a time when young people were being married off, my mom was a firstborn in a family of 11. She ended up sending her to Nairobi to live with her uncle so that she could get an education. Everybody else was marrying off their children, but she was like, no, 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 no. We're gonna send her to school. Um, So that's the kind of upbringing, you know, I've had, you know, surrounded by these strong women. That it's natural for me to want mm. to even do better and like make them proud. The thing with the feather headdress, I first came across it when I was just launching my brand. Um, so I'd only seen pictures, and these are mm. pictures that were taken in the 60s, 50s, you know, oh, black okay. and white photos. And then fast forward, so I'm at my grandmother's funeral, and suddenly my uncle had planned this but hadn't said anything. Because traditionally, it's very rare to see these dancers, but he had got the dancers to come and dance at my grandmother's funeral to celebrate her life. Mm. So here they are wearing, you know these textiles that are sort of like a patchwork of like blue purples and reds and yellows and then they're wearing their feathers and they came out singing and dancing and I was just like at some point actually I was holding on to my mom and I saw them and I said to my mom do you have balance because I'm gonna have to leave you because I need to record this so I started taking a video and my sister who had just flown in from the states was like in the background Um, making fun of me, she's just like, oh yeah, she's probably taking a video to inspire her next collection. And it was so funny because it was true, because that's exactly what I ended up doing.
0: Anyango, you make beautiful clothes, you make commercial collections. I've seen them on the runway, um, for example, at Tokyo Fashion Week. But You also do Mm -hmm. this work, which is in the social change space. You're working with charity partners. You're now setting up a foundation that you've been working on with a charity, Heart Kenya. It's called Free as a Human. And you talked about your purpose around that project. Can you share it with us?
1: So Free as a Human is an anti-human trafficking initiative. It started off as an initiative to raise awareness because human trafficking is so prevalent in Kenya. You know, Kenya is one of the leading transit points in Sub-Saharan Africa for human trafficking. And so when I'd come across the work of Heart Kenya, I was actually doing a separate service project for their shelter. And then when I started Free as a Human, it kind of just solidified our partnership, you know, and I said, okay, I, I can raise awareness, I can help people get to know about your organization, And then I started including products that I would sell and then donate profits to their shelter. And so now what I've done with the foundation, it's just new. So we're piloting our project. One of the things that we realize is as we're working with the shelter, you know, so a lot of the girls, they rescue, go into their shelter, they go through rehabilitation. And then there's a gap after they leave where if they're still underage, they'll go to school. But they do tend to take women who are older and, you know, don't have employment. So my foundation is now bridging that gap, work with partner organisations to create apprenticeship programmes, scholarships, so the women actually have access to education, higher education and also employment opportunities, so they can learn skill sets on the go.
0: Where do you find purpose and what, what is it
1: for you? Huh. Sense of purpose, I find it's more spiritual for me. And I have to say, it's something that I've grown up with. When I made the move from working in the communications industry and going into fashion, one of the things that I had understood was the role of the arts and creativity you know, in my religion as a pie. And I came across this quote and it basically said that if a man can make a piece of notepaper to the best of his ability, he's given the best praise to the creator. So for me, that gave me a deeper understanding of, a, of the role, the very important role of an artist, is that by creating, you're giving life to something and it's the best service you can actually
0: give. Well, I'd actually read that you were brought up behind. We talk about this faith in episode 25 of the podcast with Nasir Sabani, who goes by the name of the Streets Barber, if you want to go mm-hmm. back and listen to that one. He, mm-hmm. he cuts the hair of homeless people for free. And he talks yeah. about this idea of being of service. And you mentioned being of service, go, t- Talk a bit more about that. So uh, to
1: be a Baha'i in a nutshell means that you believe in the oneness of God, It means that you believe in the oneness of humanity, and it means that you believe in the oneness of religion. So we're all coming from different backgrounds, but at the same time, we're all one. You know, there's only one God, there's only one humanity, and there's only one religion. So whichever teacher you believe in, the message is the same. It just comes through a different mouthpiece. Mm -hmm. So I was brought up to understand more about diversity, And, you know, I grew up with people who are different from me from everywhere. And the one thing that I was taught from a young age is that your work should be of service to your community, Mm. you know? So you're basically... Living up to your highest purpose when your work can also serve the people around you. It should be used for something positive, you know. And when you're creating, you're giving life to something. You know, there's one quote, Baha'i Thich, that says, creation is motion and motion is life. It's beautiful. So for me, that's kind of been a tagline for me and my business, that creation is motion and motion is life. You're basically breathing life into something. So if mm-hmm. I'm breathing life into you know, a dress, what, does I, what do I want that dress to symbolise? And what do I want to say when I'm creating that dress? And then how do I make sure that by creating that dress, I'm respecting the environment and I'm serving my community? Are you quite a spiritual person? Extreme, yeah. That's my quirky side is that I'm very, very spiritual. So um, it's, it's really always been a, something that's guided me and guided how I approach life and how I approach my business.
0: I was quite interested in in Baha'i in Kenya. It's relatively new. Like the religion only arrived there in the 40s or something. Is that right?
1: It arrived in the 40s. And my mom became a Baha'i before I was born, early 80s. So I just grew up with these values and teachings. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, even though I went to Catholic schools. Did you? I did, you know, like my, cath- my high school was Catholic, my university was Catholic. But what I loved about even my my high school was that it was very accommodating. So when I had a Bahai holiday, I got you know time off, you know, because we had Muslims, we had Hindus, we had a lot of diverse cultures, and we observed every religion's holiday. Maybe not everybody taking time off, but at least, you know, I would say, hey, I'm a Bahai. It's a holiday tomorrow. I need to take time off. So and they grant it for me. What kind of kid were you? I was an adventurous kid. I was very artistic. I was a little bit of a rebel, <laughs> if I do say so myself. I was quite talkative. No, really? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> so my siblings have this thing where they called me CNN because... They were, you know, they're much older than me. So there's a 12 year age gap. And so I would be the chief informant of everything that happened <laughs> in the house whenever my mom came it. home. So they just called me CNN. And so, you know, my mom was a single parent, she raised three kids. And I had this obsession with dictionaries because like, I was very fascinated by language. My father was a journalist. He was basically not like around when I was growing up. But I did admire the fact that he was a journalist and I would read his articles as well because he was well known within East Africa, you know. So it's very easy to find his work online, you know, newspapers. And so when I was actually moving into like, what should I study in uni? I said, well, you know what? It feels like communication runs in the family. So I'm just going to do that. At the time, I was really interested in being a radio presenter. So I did
0: broadcast journalism. So at what point did you think, "Okay, I love clothes, but I actually want to carve a career in fashion. I want to have a business. For me, it wasn't exactly the
1: most natural transition into a fashion business. I started it as a hobby, you know, I would collect clothes, I would go thrift shopping, and then adjust clothes to fit my size. And then when I started playing with Kenyan textiles, like the kanga, I would make my own dresses. And my friends wow. kept asking me like, can you make me a dress? Can you make me a dress? And I'd be like, oh no, I'm just doing this for fun. Until one day, a friend of mine says to me, okay, we're going to go to the market and we're going to get some textiles and you're going to make me a <laughs> few dresses and I'm going to pay you. And then she became my first customer. And then the next time something like that happened, you know, I was at brunch with friends and they said, Oh, you know, I love what you're wearing. And I said, Oh yeah, I designed it, you know. And they said, Do you have a few more things that you've designed? Would love to see it. And you know, so after brunch, a bunch of women came over to my house and they started looking at things that I'd designed that that I'd been wearing. And they kind of said, Oh, I'd like to have this and I'd like to have this and I'd like to have this. And so suddenly, like, I have women in my living room making orders.
0: I mentioned that I'd seen you on stage, your work on the catwalk... the catwalk the the fashion stage at Tokyo Fashion Week so I was there with the UN Ethical Fashion Initiative which you have worked with as part of this project which was called African Japan Fashion and Cultural Exchange it was amazing there were some other brilliant African designers there Tebe Magugu who's in South Africa Kenneth Ize, who's an Mm -hmm. incredible designer that everyone's talking about right now but you weren't there even though your clothes were but (laughs) you sent Maya Angelou I sent Maya Angelou and I think it was the best thing
1: I, I could possibly have done. I, I sent Maya Angelou and Aretha Franklin. So both of them were kind of just, you know, hanging around. But I would started off with this poem called Human Family. And, you know, which really touches on the importance of the human family and diversity and how connected we all are. Of course, we don't all look the same. We don't come from the same place. We express ourselves differently. But our humanity connects us. You know, so I started off my session with a poem on, on human family. And, you know, and she ends the poem with, we're more alike than we are unlike. You know, so we all desire the same things, whether it's love, whether it's to be understood, you know, to be accepted. We all desire the same things no matter where we come from. In minor ways, we differ. In major, we're the same. I note the obvious differences between each sort. And type, but we are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. We are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike. We are more alike, my friends, than we are unalike.
0: It was in this giant venue and it was like electric. And then all your girls had afros and were dancing. And there was like this incredible energy. It was more than just clothes.
1: Yes, it was more than just clothes. And the thing to remember is that I specifically chose Dr. Maya Angelou and Aretha Franklin because i have always stood for diversity and activism. So these are two women who have used their art for activism. You know, they've used their art through the poem to say that, listen, we're all here, we're going to need to coexist, but we have to accept each other for who we are. And that for me was really just... I felt like they were there with me while I was creating this collection and presenting it.
0: We've talked about all these celebratory aspects of what you deliver and what you mm. produce, although, of course, the human trafficking story is anything but that. But I was just thinking, like, has it been hard for you? You're such a strong voice in this space, and I really admire you, actually. I mm-hmm. you, but it's interesting thinking about that moment at Tokyo Fashion Week. But now mm. in this time, a lot of the stuff around diversity or the lack of it is being centred. What's that been like? Yeah,
1: I think it's it's been extremely hard for me. And this year, particularly, of course, like a global pandemic <laughs> and, you know, Black Lives Matter, you know, the killing of George Floyd, like everything has sort of had this spiral, And, you know, as as a Black woman and coming from Africa, actually, you know, it's taken a really long time for people to accept African fashion and start wearing it proudly.
0: On the continent, in Africa or
1: globally? I think globally, because on the continent, we already like, you know, we love it. It's been years of, you know, other international designers maybe, you know, using inspiration from Africa and putting it on their, you know, on their runway. And people asking, well, it's accepted when a foreign designer does it, but why aren't African designers being accepted on the main stage, you know, the same platforms? So for me, it's been really difficult adjusting to that, you know, looking at retailers not wanting to give you the same terms as they give other people. Really? Yeah, it's, it's actually interesting because when you look at like, in, especially in retail, um, you have to be really firm. Like I've had to be really, really firm about my terms and how I work and, you know, insisting on wholesale versus consignment, which some retailers will insist on when working with brands like me, which they feel like it's a risk factor because you're a smaller brand versus a bigger brand where they wouldn't go that, you know, they wouldn't go to them with the same terms. Mm-hmm. So when everything was coming out about diversity, I was just like, oh, that kind of reminds me of that time that, you know, I was having this conversation that didn't really pan out. And it kind of it just shows me why that might have happened, Mm. you know. So I think it's challenging in itself, you know, and I think as many businesses have experienced, you know, we've had our orders canceled. So, you know, suddenly suddenly money that would have come in suddenly wasn't coming in, you know. So it's also just that thing where like, oh, that retailer says we're not going to buy as much because we have all this stock, so we can't really buy anymore. So we're going to wait on that order. So it's a bit of a challenge.
0: And yet, can we talk about Beyonce?
1: <laughs> OK, yes, it's been a bit of a challenge. And yet I woke up one day. <laughs> it, was, it was quite funny. So what happened with Beyonce? Um, I was online actually one morning and someone commented on a photo that I posted like the day before and they were like, oh, hey, your work is showing on Beyonce.com. And I was just like, what do you mean? Like, I, you know, I wouldn't remember it if I sent her something, right? And so <laughs> I go onto her website and she's sort of done, you know, when she did Black Parade, I and when mean, she's not Black Parade, she's got this listing of like Black brands, you know, and her stylist, Zarina Acres had curated this list as well and she's got a list of black-owned brands from all over the world and I saw my name there and I was like what (laughs) how did this happen like you know and you know shared my profile and I was just like wow
0: the power of Beyonce this
1: is incredible the power of Beyonce you're suddenly everywhere
0: right
1: it does have its own power and and also just the fact that it it just happened there's there's no method to the madness I didn't send in anything like You know, I wasn't having conversations with a stylist. I was just busy doing my thing, you know. So that was a really affirming moment for me.
0: Let's talk about Helsinki Fashion Week. I think the first, certainly one of the first fashion weeks anywhere to focus purely on emerging sustainable designers. And for two or three years, the founder Evelyn Mora was putting on this event in Helsinki where she would only elevate these young in some cases, right out of college, designers who were really pushing sustainability. So materials, but not just that, everything, like really looking at circularity, at carbon footprint, at ethical production. Obviously, COVID changed everything. She put everything into the digital realm. You were part of it. Tell us about it. You're an avatar. I was, I'm was, I an avatar.
1: I was, I was really excited about that, you know, when we were talking about what I'd be doing for my residency. Um, one of the things that I said to her, you know, I'd, I'd always had this fantasy of doing the next collection and sort of being virtually everywhere. <laughs> you know, I could be anywhere in the world. It's like, hey, here's me in Paris hanging out or here's me in Morocco. And so I said to her, why don't we showcase my piece and create my own avatar to wear it? A, it's going to be very diverse and different from what anybody else is going to do. And I also wanted to showcase women who look like me. So I was assigned a 3D artist. Mm-hmm. Um, her name is Yifan Pu. The culmination of that is that we've extended our collaboration with, with the 3D artist to launch a collection. Oh,
0: really? What, what does it look like, though? What's the process of that? Presumably, you've still got a pattern make yourself or not. How did you do it?
1: So the process still has to start with a pattern making. So I still had to have a pattern made and then digitized, which then was put on a computer and then stitched on a computer. It means that when I go to a manufacturer, they're just able to put it into production if I get orders. Because it still has that initial stage of having the pattern so that it fits properly on a body. And I had to indicate like what size that was going to be in. So in my case, it was going to be in a size 18. What I love about having digital garments is also the ability of making these garments accessible for everybody. Um, Uh, so that, you know, now they're going to be online and gamers and, you know, people online can purchase these garments and wear them on their own avatars and see how they look. And I feel like this is really the future. You know, I would like in the future to be able to have my own virtual showroom where people can come and wear my garments digitally before ordering them and then making a decision and a purchase based on that, you know, using AI tech to predict sizing, measure your body, you know, and measure your fit. So this is something that I'm really interested in and inspired by.
0: For anyone who is not aware of the carbon footprint of the global fashion industry, there was a a report that was put out by Audra, which is a digital showroom company, the Carbon Trust, I believe. And what they did was they, over a year, they mapped out what the carbon emissions would be from all the buyers and Mm -hmm. all the models and all the designers moving around to the four big fashion weeks. We call them the big four. So London, Paris, Milan, New York. Mm -hmm. The needlessness of traveling to all of these events is just obvious. We don't need to send everyone everywhere. I mean, I used to do it. But a no. digital alternative cuts the need for doing that out completely. Your models are basically avatars. They're created digitally. They don't exist. Absolutely. We all watched through Zoom and it was fine. Exactly. That's exactly it. Everybody
1: can watch it. You know, it's more inclusive. So it's no longer this thing where, oh, my goodness, I have to be on the list to see this show. Everybody can see it. And I think it's, it's actually positive from the consumer perspective because they're engaging in the same way a buyer or a journalist will be able to engage with this brand. And at the end of the day, the consumer is who you need the most because they're the ones who are going to buy and wear your clothes.
0: I was just thinking, as you said that, I was pulling a bit of a face because I was was thinking, does it embarrass you and annoy you ever, because it clearly does me, to think about that kind of a horrible, ridiculous, top-down, hierarchical, you're not, you know, velvet rope thing, you can't sit with us thing that is classic old-fashioned.
1: It does. It does. Because as a designer, I've had doors shut to me because I don't fit the aesthetic of a particular fashion week, for instance. I mean, early stages. But, you know, even for me to be able to go to New York Fashion Week, I'd have to have a lot of money for me to be able to showcase, right? For me to be part of any major fashion week, I'd have to have a lot of money to showcase just because the producers of shows will charge tens of thousands of dollars to have you participate, get your models and do your production. So the fact that I can just showcase my collection digitally and say, you know what, I don't even want to show it during the season. I mean, other than Helsinki Fashion Week, because that was very open to everybody. And their system is like, it's so accommodating for young brands. But like other Fashion Weeks have left out good talent because that good talent doesn't have
0: access. So it's left for the elite, which it's kind of cringy. Do you reckon that digital fashion weeks can help with that?
1: So the thing to understand is that the process of creating, like when it comes to craft, it's better when you're working with people, you know, because you can't replace the human hand and what it can do. You can't replace that talent. So what digital fashion weeks have done essentially is you can still imagine what a beaded jacket would look like on a computer and bring it to the forefront before you spend money on having it produced and prototyped over and over and over again. That's wasting resources, right? So once you have it on your computer and you have your dress and what it's going to look like on the final body, or like on the final human being, you can then go back to the artisans and say, okay, we're doing it exactly like this. Whereas the other process would have been, let's repeat it and repeat it and repeat it until we get it right. While you're repeating that, you know, and changing materials and adjusting things, you're wasting a lot of resources. So it's not to say that the work of the artisan Um, has been removed from the equation. No, it just means that when you're engaging this artisan or you're engaging a tailor or whoever it is in the process, you're more clear about what you want. You're more clear about the fit. You're more clear about the size that you want to to produce any garment in. Well,
0: we can remove some of the absurd waste that lies in the middle of these kind of ill-considered old systems that we haven't really, we haven't challenged them. We're so challenged in the industry by so many different things but I think that yeah the industry itself has been very slow to challenge the old systems upon which it is built and and this is the kind of mm. I feel like if when people listen to these conversations who are not fashion people in adverted commas I think often they get really frustrated right. and they think well just stop doing it it's so wasteful <laughs> like what are you doing it for yeah. we don't need new things we don't need more clothes and yet we do need that creative impulse and to be able to create with our hands to be able to make art but we also need to provide jobs and fair jobs to the people exactly who are employed by the industry right which is something like 60 million garment workers what what do you think is the greatest challenge for you looking at those tensions and and perhaps you would like to talk to us a bit about how you produce ethically as well as sustainably
1: i think for me it's you know the most important thing is that like you said people still need to stay employed people need jobs. We're going to need to wear our clothes. Even the finest silk at some point is going to wear out the finest cotton. So we need to be conscious of that. Um, When it comes to being ethical, um, like my model is right now producing only what is needed. So I'm opening up like the next launch of my collection is going to come out for pre-orders. So there's a window of one month where people can pre-order these garments. After the window closes, I only produce what's been pre-ordered by customers.
0: This is now happening a lot more, isn't it? I mean, we hadn't heard of this being a kind of widespread model until this year.
1: Yeah. And that kind of had been my model even before. Like, I rarely ever produced a lot of things that were in stock, just because, first of all, I have to make sure that I can meet the minimums because, again, when you go into the fashion industry, because I design my own textiles and the prints, I have to make sure that I can meet the manufacturer's minimum to produce that textile. So I don't want to buy 100 yards, 100 meters of textile for it to just sit there hoping that I'm going to get orders to sell it. It's not that I don't believe in my brand, but, you know, we're trying to counter waste. We're trying to make sure that we're not producing more than we need. So if I'm going to put a cycle of pre-ordering, then it means that I only produce what I need when I need it.
0: So how are you doing that when it comes to workers? Tell us about your ethical practices and how you ensure that you're paying fairly and that the workers are treated right.
1: So right now um, I work with two facilities that are based in London. So I've been there and at the beginning stages of any production, I'm there. I literally would have my desk. <laughs> like that's one. one of them actually just gave me a desk and said, you know, stay here as long as you need. So I actually get to see how everybody is working. So I try as much as possible to look at. The conditions of the workers, are they certified? And also, when I'm sourcing my materials, you know, if if I'm printing, are they using isofree free dyes? Are they concerned about the environment? So all my partnerships are selected based on the on that criteria, you know. And I ask them questions as well.
0: I was going to ask you what was it like when you were producing in Kenya because you have done that too. I've done that too,
1: but you know, at that time I had my own studio, so I could control. Oh, this you. <laughs> It was just me, basically, you know, and I had a very small team, but it was right there so I could see. The only difference is that scaling up when I needed to do, if I had many orders, then it meant that I had to outsource still because, you know, my team wasn't big enough to to handle orders for a store, for instance.
0: We opened this conversation, however, touching on human trafficking. And I mean, we know that forced labor and bonded labor is rife in the fashion supply chain. For example, all the Uyghur stories that have been coming out of China and yeah. the amount of cotton that is tainted, the amount of the world's cotton supply that is potentially or likely tainted yeah. by modern slavery is just very, very upsetting, isn't it? I mean, we, we've got a tangled yeah. web that we've woven with the length of fashion supply chains and the complexity and opacity. It's like we, it's hard to have an eye on exactly where the fibers come from, for example.
1: Absolutely. For instance, there's one company in Turkey that I source from that has basically been very, very adamant about where they source their cotton and how sustainable they are with their sourcing. So as a consumer or as someone who uses some of their products, the most I can do is ask as many questions and look at the company profile and see what they're doing. You know, because at the end of the day, I I can't be at the farms. So it requires a level of trust that the partners that you work with who are working sustainably are actually doing what they're doing. Because being fully in control of a supply chain, there's no, I always say, there's no brand that is 100% sustainable.
0: There's just a lot to worry about, isn't there? Like we're exceeding planetary boundaries. We're really wasteful. We're shocking with diversity. We've got modern slavery embedded in our supply chains. It makes you want to put your head in your hands and go, I just, I don't want to look. So... I'm yeah. very interested in finding those roots of hope. So I feel like the
1: future and the global industry really needs to emphasize quality and they need to emphasize people of a profit. It's that simple. People of a profit is what we need to emphasize. Because when you're thinking people of a profit, you're not going to necessarily be going for the Uber cheap products. You're going to be a bit more conscious about how you're sourcing and who's making the clothes. So this is something that we just need to adapt. The roots of hope uh, lie in the younger generation. It lies in people like us who are committed to doing something different. If we're saying that we can't do things the old way anymore, then it means that the generation of people that are doing things the old way need to step aside and yeah. give room for a younger generation to actually make a difference. It's that simple. You, know, you don't change anything by doing the same thing over and over and over again and if you have people at the top who insist on staying there and not changing how they're doing and a system that is it's so exclusive we're never going to change anything so i have hope in people like myself you know designers like myself you know you mentioned earlier the Kenneth Easers you know Tipembogugu this is what change looks like and this is what the future looks like <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode over on our website www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. This show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis. And I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs Press. My
1: friends all feel that I'm carrying us to tell them all that they are wrong.
0: Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you.